Welcome to Holistic Resistance. It's good to be here. This is episode one. I have a ton of excitement about the show. I have a ton of excitement about the journey we're going to take, the things we're going to cover. This is a combination of like production, where we'll edit down an episode, and also raw experiences. This is March. Um, as of March of this year, I have had five funerals in my community. Um, it's really changed the landscape of how I look at uh, my typical six funerals a year being we're at five. And it's you know just the beginning of April and by March we had that number. Before I get into death and tragedy, holistic resistance is about how we can resist, dismantle racism, reach for each other, build deep community, and that's what this episode's about, starting with myself. Who is Aaron Johnson? Well, I'm a middle of five. I uh, have two older siblings and two younger siblings. Older brother Travis and Alicia. Alicia being the oldest of all of us. Younger brother Bryce, youngest of all of us. Little sister Lilia. I have close relationships with everybody. In my family, we're a close family. We uh, grew up in a place that required us to be close to each other. And so as I tell my story as an artist, filmmaker, photographer, and musician, you'll find that my family is riddled all through all of that. I could not be any of these things without my family. They built me in a lot of ways. And my mother was an architect, we call her. My father was, uh, he enforced and he also informed, but he was such a quieter individual in the sense of he's a man of few words. I hope to get some interviews from him. I interviewed him several times before he passed away and I have a lot of his messages recorded. So maybe we'll share some of his content as this episode uh, kind of reveals itself. And I think what's important is that this is really about ending racism, but also from a personal point of view, I want to share my story um, just from my heart, not a lot of scripts here, not a lot of editing. I want to be vulnerable in this podcast and not just this podcast, but just in every episode that I come in, I want to make sure that we're reaching for each other in deep ways that we're not editing our lives. This is a kind of a you know podcast. You're constantly trying to figure out what to show and what not to show. And I think the spirit of this podcast is we're going to lean on the risk of just being vulnerable and being open and maybe going too far. But that's the goal. We really want to live a, live a, kind of a production that it, it comes with open heart. So one of the things that's important is where do I live? I live in Southern California in the high desert. The high desert is a beautiful Mojave desert. Uh, it has uh, amazing sunsets. And it's not that diverse. I mean, Victorville has... Pretty large minority population in this period too, but Phelan is the city I live in, and in that city I am one of the we're one of the few African heritage families that own property and live here and kind of settled in here. We've been in this area and this city for about the last twenty five years. Most of those years were spent here in um, Phelan. We spent some time in this period, Apple Valley, and I don't think we ever lived in Victorville, but. Uh, Things have changed over the last 25 years. We are still here. We have a ministry here in Phelan. 
a church, a family church. My dad preached here for many years. My mother and sister still preach here in the feeling area. I think what's significant about me and my story is I thoroughly enjoy people. One of the things I really fight for is reaching for people. Trying to understand who people are, where they're headed. I would love to know their secrets if they allow me to. So Aaron Johnson is really about human connection. Uh, got married five years ago to an amazing woman named Camelia Antoine Johnson. I, uh, if I can talk her into it, she's open to it. I should talk her into it. But if she's open to it, I would love to bring her on the show. Can't get her perspective of how we've met, but I met her on OKCupid and we asked a lot of questions. We reached for each other and found each other and she has been a, a miracle on multiple levels. She she really understands my story. She understands my heart and uh five years in we've really have really continued to recommit and reach for each other and really unpack what it means to be next to each other. She is a minimalist with me. We're minimalist. We are minimalist by choice. I run a a nonprofit through our church here in Feeling called Turning Up Now. It's a youth mentorship program. And this mentorship program is really about supporting young people in what we call a deep mentorship program. So if you're in as a mentee, you're in the program for life if you would like to be. We don't cut people off at 18 or 20 or 25. We just mentor for a lifetime. It makes our numbers small, but the impact deep. We made this choice about 10 years ago, and the name has changed multiple times, but we kind of settled recently on Turn Up Now. I think turning up the greatness of young people now is something that we've kind of stuck to. So I spend Monday through Friday doing deep mentorship uh, program, and I think that's one of the most important pieces of work I do. Uh, I have several young adults that live with me day in and day out. I've worked with them for... 10 or more years. Uh, okay, some, like some of them a little less than 10 years, like eight years, like I said, eight or more years. And in that, we have learned to reach for each other. I work with young people that have been thrown away by their families, thrown away by our communities. I'm usually the last stop before homelessness, death, or prison. Um, that has helped me think about fatherhood, being a parent. I don't have any children, but I have children I've kind of adapt, adopted through this work. So Turn Up Now is Monday through Friday. Um, this is funded by the church, by volunteers. If you're a person that would like to donate to Turn Up Now, let me know. Uh, just message me on Facebook or hit me up at holisticresistance.com. My number's there. Email's there. Turn Up Now, briefly, I'll just say is that when you talk about holistic resistance, Turn Up Now is kind of the essence of that. We have a handful of young people that we live and breathe their support. We don't we don't uh, limit them to a nine to five. We just say, if you need help, reach. If you want a skill, let's try and teach. If you've been hurt, let's try and give it attention and show up for that. We don't define any of our young people by the things they've done that was bad. We are convinced that everybody is great. The world around us is very toxic. And our saying we always say in Turn Up Now is that we don't make anyone great. You're already great. We just dust it off. 
so you can see how great you are. Dust off your greatness. That's a theme we have. Um, when I think about my story, when I think about who I am as an African heritage person, I also facilitate workshops, getting close to blackness for white identified people. When I do this kind of work, it's very vulnerable. I use my own stories, my own body, my own time, my own energy, my own pain to really help white people think about blackness, unpack blackness, and notice the power of reaching for blackness. I uh, would know a lot of white people that march and donate money and these things are good, but really don't know black people, don't spend time with them, don't understand their pain, don't understand their story. They just kind of know them intellectually. And so I try and help them reach for blackness in a real way. I don't feel like you can really be an advocate for black people if you actually don't know them, hang out with them, sit in their communities. I have a technique in my workshops and phone counseling program I called building your a pain profile. We do it for each other. But I think it's important that white people understand that black pain is not just one dimensional, two dimensional. It's multidimensional. It's ancestral sometimes. It's systemic at times. And so for me, I think it's important for white people to really understand that when they look at black people, that they actually can see them individually. Their pain profiles can be dramatically different from one black person to the next, even in the same family. So that workshop really does speaks to that work. It, it speaks around those topics. It reaches for that material. And we'll be going through a lot of that material in this podcast. If you're a white person listening to this podcast, one of the things that we we want to achieve is the ability for white people to spend time with blackness. And that's what we're going to be doing in this podcast. I've been black for a long time. Not a long time. 35 years. And... I'm continuously analyzing ways to share my black experience and hope that it resonates with white people. Because that's a critical part for my story. So getting close to blackness, um, that is uh, four workshops, 1.0 through 4.0. And I'm also a teacher. I teach... Uh, I guess I'm not a standard public school teacher, but I constantly am teaching and turn up now, and I constantly am facilitating. I do some public speaking. I uh, am working on several film projects. This year, we've started a documentary called Holistic Resistance, um, really unpacking the journey of the workshops that I teach, the people I meet, the work I kind of envision in the world, and also other individuals that are doing extraordinary work as dismantling oppression. So holistic resistance, my journey to participate in the collapsing and the dismantling of racism. We have several small art films. We're working on some collaboration films. I'm, doing a, I'm, really, I'm really excited about a, a video series uh, that's going to be called Field Recordings. It's going to be literally shot in a field, poetry, performance, dance, uh, I'm excited about field recordings. That piece is going to be interesting. Um, and this podcast, this podcast is going to be a, a massive project I'm working on right now. I'm actually doing two podcasts. This one, Holistic Resistance, and also Rewild Portland. Um, and I think I think one of the things that's important is 
is how we bring guests on the show. The show is not just about people that have books or a product to sell. If you have one, that's fine. But this podcast is really interested in interviewing people that have stories they want to share, that have experience, our experiences that are useful. So we're going to have a variety of guests on this show. Uh, I hope to interview my mother, for example, and her thinking and raising us five children in a, a mostly white community. Our dominant white community is hyper-racist, confederate flags everywhere. Um, how she thought about our safety as a mother. Um, this is, you know, this show is really about guests that help us remember that we're human. And remember that we have flaws as humans. So that's one of the goals. I'd like to end the show uh, with a cross-line inappropriate question. If you ever uh, talk on the phone with me there in my counseling program, Holistic Resistance Counseling Program, or in uh, just a normal conversation, I always like to end the call either with gratitude um, or a cross-line inappropriate question. I think a podcast, this is a good, uh, this is a good way to end it. So, I'm going to start like it's our first episode. So our cross line inappropriate question for episode one is if this year from this question being asked, you had 12 months to live. Would you maintain the jobs, relationships, entertainment that you are currently maintaining, currently participating in? Or would you change those things? If so, what would you change? I would love your hear your answers. Uh, I would love to hear your thinking. And most of all, I would love to hear your inappropriate cross-line question from me. Stay up, stay strong, and enjoy Holistic Resistance Podcast, Season 1. Let's get it. <laughs>
good to be here on holistic resistance podcast how you doing portia i'm doing well aaron how are you doing good got off of a four-week tour went to oakland for a week we're back we're about to head back to oakland in a couple of weeks do some more work we're taking on a lot of big big topics do you have anything on top for you now what's bubbling inside your heart right now yeah you know i think one of the biggest things that's on top for my heart right now is just seeing the power and the movement around the chronically undertouched project mm. and just how important this conversation is to push into the world and thinking about the way that oppression and, and these systems of oppression have played a huge role in the chronically undertouched black bodies, but in yeah. particular looking at young black men yeah. and how that is sitting with folks coming off of this tour. Yeah. Sorry, I mixed up. You were saying something. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say that uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that this is a, a great place to kind of go into for yourself. One thing you also mentioned in the workshops and the deep dives is from this story is that you were walking out and you're like, man, like my heart just feels for this young mentee of mine and what yeah. they're feeling. And then there was a moment when you, you felt like, oh, that resonated with me. Yes. I, I am also, mm -hmm. and I have also been in recovery mm -hmm. of being chronically undertouched. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious for you, um, what was it like coming to that realization of like, oh, one of the main reasons why I'm also connecting and able can, and I'm able to relate to what this young mentee is facing is because it's also inside of me. And I've seen that I've been on this journey of working on the chronically undertouched. And the last thing I'm also curious about and you um, sharing a little bit in this um, podcast episode is some individuals are like, Aaron, Portia, I love the work that you're doing with the chronically undertouched project. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to support in the variety of ways and my skill sets that I can. And my question is, how do I 
help move this work forward? And what is your end goal? What, 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 what are you hoping to look up a year from now, two years from now and say, this is how the Chronically Undertouched Project is going. And this has been a part of this powerful movement that I can see in a lot of ways that this is, this is why this was such a powerful project to invest my time, energy, and money into. Well, I appreciate you talking about that because, you know, when you're working with mentees, you spend a lot of time going, oh, I'm helping them, I'm helping them. And this case, unlike many cases, I walked away going, oh, snap. I'm in recovery of being chronic under touch. There were 15 years of my life where I had an absence of touch. You know, by, by way of about eight years old till about, you know, somewhere in my late 20s, um, the only touch I thought was acceptable was sexual touch mm. um, or aggressive touch, like violence, wrestling, boxing. Um, and so walking away from that conversation with that young mentee, I was like, snap. Not only is he crying under touch, I have been surviving being crying under touch. And I looked around, it's almost like a matrix. It's almost like I got given a, a pill that just opened up my mind because everywhere mm. I look from that day forward is he's under touch. He's angry because his part of his narrative is that he's hungry. Yes, he has a job, but what happened was his nervous system is shot because he's been fighting all his life. He's not been held. His story has not been heard. He has not been uh, uh, put into an environment where he's treated like a human being. He's treated more like an animal than a human being. Um, and so for me, I start to, to recognize the 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 relationship of mental health, black bodies and mass incarceration, black male violence in the, in the world around us, the framing and cinematic documentation of black male violence that perpetuates a tough, emotionally detached, non cuddleable, non non touchable black male that's so easily accessible, yeah. and how unaccessible the full human being of a touched nervous system intact black male is such a secret mm. it's so hidden mm. and so for me I looked around and saw person after person at the gas station at the mall um, you know police officers um, just noticing where men but specifically black men were untouchable yeah. And watching like MMA fighters just like beat the snot out of each other, bleeding out of the face and choking each other out. And a commentator that's like, and you know, he's been doing this for so much of knockouts. Just hear them talk. It started to feel like I was in another zone of like, I can, we celebrate two men in a cage, literally mm. a cage, mm. almost killing each other, mm. celebrating it. We, we just like are enraptured. And yet, we have no container for the touch needs, mm. for the things that will actually keep you breathing, that will stop uh, mass incarceration, that would stop um, school shootings, that would stop yeah. Yeah. Uh, sexism, abuse in so many levels if we had the different kind of world yeah. that didn't make that so unaccessible. And I'm actually then shocked that we've gone this far and we haven't self-destructed as a culture in America because of how deep and how effective we have been eradicating uh, human interaction, yeah. including the touch material, yeah. being addressed. And we want to address it. And so I want to be a part of this. And my vision for this is a documentary. It's an online course. It's workshops that we want to tour throughout the United States, take out all the complexities yeah. of all the queer folks, the trans folks, and all the intersections that suffer, which is all of us, right. from being chronic and touch. So I see this in so many containers. We're starting here, and we just today launched a GoFundMe to fund yep. the the uh, model yep. 
yeah. of the Crocodile Touch project. So for me, it just feels just like poetically powerful to be at this moment in our history. We see this, we're clear about it, and we'll get at it. And Aaron, what would you say to to the young boys as as this project is getting spreaded and and we can we don't have a full understanding, but we know that it's a high possibility it can be pushed in a way that there are young black men who will start to come to the realization that they identify as chronically under touch because this is not a mainstream conversation mm-hmm. and this is not something that you can <clears throat> Google yeah. and understand. Um, what would you say to these young black men who are starting to come into realization of, oh, I think I identify with this and I want to start healing this and I want to start moving forward in my life um, and recovery of being chronically undertouched. Yeah. So we've got about a minute here. So I'm trying to do this in a minute. Um, first, examine yourself. Second, um, take the data of when your touch material has been hurt. Meditation, build community and gather all the thinking that we have offered, but all that's out there about how you can interrupt and fight for your humanity. Mm. All right. We'll let you go. This is the end of this podcast of the Chronic Inner Touch Holistic Resistance Podcast. Thank you for listening. Join our campaign yes. uh, to support the GoFundMe. We'll link it here in the description below and also send it to you if you just text us or reach to us. We will send you the campaign if you can't get it easily of uh, the Chronic Inner Touch project being funded. We're trying to raise $10,000 this year for the film, for the online course, for the facilitation, and to fund our podcast. We're going to launch exclusively around this with the young folks that we're supporting. Thank you so much for all of your support. Just want to say that the chronically undertouched work that we are doing is a lifelong journey. So we hope that you will be on this lifelong journey with us. Uh, Thank you for being with Aaron and I today. Peace. Peace. Oh, I love that. Isai singing African Heritage mm. CD training. Thank you for that audio clip. Um, yes. We're here at Holistic Resistance Podcast. And I really would love to check in. We have been a while since we had a podcast together. Mm-hmm. Uh, creativity has been on overdrive. And we're so excited to finally get this into the world. Um, we just came off of a five week tour. And then in Northwest, uh, Seattle, Portland, Squim, Duval, uh, Olympia. And we also went to Oakland for yes. a week. Yes. And we're back for a week. And we're going back to Oakland uh, mm-hmm. September 10th in a couple of days. And so we have been doing extensive work, some pretty heavy lifting and deepening our work. And I just been curious, Portia, you know, on this ride, I mean, you have been traveling and doing a ton of work as well as just burying your mother in June. Your mom mm-hmm. passed away. And we've been working around that on, on so many levels. So just drop in with folks that have been tracking you, holding you up, and folks that just met you right now, just like where you are in this intense schedule, intense life experiences, and still take it on the impossible and staying creative. Yeah. Um, first, first and foremost, I think the first things that I want to say is to each and every single individual at Holistic Resistance and within the community that has been just extremely helpful and supportive to me during this time. I just have great, great amount of gratitude for you. So I think that's the first and foremost is I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your financial donations. Thank you for your emotional 
um, donations. Thank you for your altars. Yes. Thank you for your prayers. Yes. Thank you for your ability to reach for me in the way and the capacity that felt good to me during this hard time. Um, so I think that's first and foremost. And to answer your question, Aaron, I, I feel like doing this work has been a big piece of my healing. Yeah, It has been a big piece of me being able is both my gr- grievances and my healing, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, like, being able to do the work, like, around specifically the chronically undertouched material mm-hmm. and continuing to look at this this powerful park bench question yes. being put into the world and having people slow that down and think more about ways. Like, I, I asked myself, if you take me back even maybe a couple of years ago, how many people would have attention mm-hmm. around outside of the outside of the Trump era, outside mm-hmm. of the Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement? Like take those take those out of the equation. How many individuals would be interested in doing this work right now? Yeah. And so to me, it's just such an importance in this moment in time in the window that we have to be able to constantly think about ways that we can push healing and this revolutionary work of looking at how oppression and how these systems have played a huge role in the navigating of the things that I've been dealing with, you know, Mm -hmm. the chronically undertouched and the carnage that we navigate on a daily basis is in in no way separate from my personal reality. Yeah. I, I still feel the, the, the residue of how our ancestors and how, this how slavery and how these things have impacted us right Mm -hmm. and so in a lot of ways it's it's healing for me to be able to say this is what i'm putting my time and energy towards Mm -hmm. this is where i'm putting my work and 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 that has just been so big in navigating the pain of coming off of the loss of my mother and the grieving that is still happening in this moment in time yeah thank you for being here Thank you for being on the tour. Thank you for all the work you've contributed and how you've cared for yourself, mm. even with a pretty extensive responsibility, like knowing when you could step in and show up and when you should um, take a break and just be on the peripheral and rest and care for yourself. Um, there's there's a piece that feels connective. Um, you know, I lost my father in 2010. Mm-hmm. You lost your mother this year. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a way in which as you bury your parents and as you, at whatever age there's a way in which you can reflect on how you were raised, reflect on the community you grew up in. And I think both of us could easily say that being uh, thoughtfully touched, being thought of in our touch plan and curating a place where we could get our touch needs met growing up yeah. did not exist. Definitely if not. anything, we had like anti yeah. anti-touch environments. It right. was almost like it wasn't that only when we were touched, but we were touched in ways that caused harm yeah. 90% of the time. We, we probably were faster, more likely to get spanked or hit exactly. than we were to be held and hugged and massaged and held in a in a healing, connective way, mm-hmm. as a way of being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't just mean from parents, even from our peers, you know. There are many games we even played where we punched each other or wrestled each other and, and like cause physical harm yeah not many games that we thought how can we mindfully hold space in touch with each other this wasn't language that we used growing up and we realized that it there was excuse me the results are extensive and so i just want to speak to 
that idea and how you are holding this, excuse me again, I'm burping today, how you hold this work around being chronically undertouched and and you bring up also the, the, the other part of being chronically undertouched was being chronically overtouched mm-hmm. and how that also eliminates. So just speak mm-hmm. to kind of your experience on tour and watching the park bench question, watching white folks and black folks at this point, yeah. um, think about the the invasive power yeah. of a white supremacist culture that's really weaponized black bodies to the point they don't re- they don't receive the touch they can't even ask for touch they act, most of them say I don't even need it anymore you know mm-hmm. so there's so many levels you can enter into that but just kind of explain to me how you've been sitting with this work and sitting with um, the power of the chronically untouched yeah I think this is this is such this this question alone could be its own full podcast right mm-hmm. um and and podcasts mm-hmm. <laughs> because there's so much like a series yeah. of 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 this question alone because there's so much embedded in that one thing i was reflecting on was when i was a little girl and how i look at a part of being you know in this place of understanding what does it look like to be both chronically undertouched mm-hmm. and chronically overly touched yes. is is really important because one thought that comes up to me is like when I think about being a young child, one thing that I often had to do was sit down and get my hair done. Yes. And I had to sit down and get my hair done because, you know, my mother would braid my hair or she would do my hair. There wasn't an option of going outside of the home mm-hmm. financially wise. We just didn't have the money. We didn't have the, the energy. You have six kids. You don't have time. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it would make more sense to say, OK, on this day, I'm going to do your hair. The next day, I'm going to do your sister's hair. And that's how we did it. And I remember thinking about getting my hair touched mm. in a way that I needed my hair to be touched seemed obsolete. Like it did not mm. seem like an option for me many times. And when I reflect back on my mother's hands touching my hair, I recognize that there was a level of touching and in, in, in her reach was mirroring how she was touched yes it was mirroring how her mother would would say this is how we are supposed to touch each other's Mm -hmm. hair and i think to this this problem within the black community and specifically around black women's hair it's like don't touch black women's hair and like think about it and people think like oh well it's just don't touch black women's hair but it's like no what is the story around that Mm -hmm. what is the chronically undertouched material Mm -hmm. around that what is a chronically overly touched material on that Mm -hmm. um and when i think about this material that's something that's just just really been resonating with me is how much as a young girl when i thought about hair I never thought about what my needs particularly would mean. Mm. I always focused on what needed to happen, mm-hmm. <laughs> but not what I wanted and yeah. what my needs were. What I, what what little Portia would have wanted was a nice, you know, a nice scalp, a nice head massage, mm-hmm. and patiently. But with the with the level of 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 carnage and vortex and time and and time being weaponized and you know time being more important than black lives and things of that sort. With that amount of energy being put on on this one black woman, it was times where I, I remember feeling like the touch felt more harmful because yeah. now I have to rush and get my hair washed mm-hmm. and I'm feeling all kind of, you know, uh, stress and, and, and anxiety mm-hmm. and things of that sort. 
that I'm basically embodying from my mother yeah. who's feeling stressed yeah. and anxiety. Mm-hmm. So when you think about when you have that level of just like, how do I even touch my daughter's hair? Mm-hmm. How do I even cultivate that into her mm-hmm. and let her know that like this 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 is a precious jewel on mm-hmm. top of your head mm-hmm. and I'm going to be gentle and patient and kind with yeah. that. And I don't I don't blame that. I don't like in saying all this, I don't blame my mother yeah. for that. I blame systems. Yes. I blame carnage. I blame oppression yeah. because it made it impossible for yeah. my mother to take the time yes. to be gentle, to be able to fully um, put my needs first because there was just so much level of her not receiving that model and not being having that mirror to then be able to pass to me. You're tender-headed. Oh, I'm just heavy-handed. You know these phrases? Mm-hmm. You know, just you tender-headed. No, you're pulling on my hair. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure, there's some people that are more tender, but I think people that were celebrated for just quietly taking the pain. Taking the pain. Oh, they're, they're yeah. not tender-headed. But Hands you, for shouting out, going, ow! That, oh, why are you so harsh? Why are you so? Why does it feel like it's like a trial yeah. to get my hair done? You know, yeah, and, I, and I think I think back as a child, and I feel like that's the first place where I felt chronically overly touched mm-hmm. was in my hair. You weren't thought of. As I, I didn't feel thought well of. I didn't feel like you I could speak up. <laughs> exactly, I didn't feel like I could speak up and say what my what my needs and desires were, and you know that that's one of the main ways where I started to feel into how into how oppression played a role mm-hmm. in. I didn't have the words then, but how it made sense of how I was going to be overly touched yes. in a way that I didn't need. Yeah. And then be, you know, praised and 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 took in more in and accepted more mm-hmm. when I took that pain and even better when I created a level of like um white European beauty standards mm-hmm. with my hair. And that's like a whole nother conversation of when it comes to how a black woman is perceived and her chronically overly touched or undertouched material based on her hair and how she appears in this world. Right. It fits into an important place because we, we, we kind of title our podcast, we title our workshops that the chronically overtouched or the undertouched. Mm-hmm. We, we emphasize the undertouched, but overtouch is a part of being being overtouched is a part of the trauma that caused you to be undertouched. Right. You know, I think it's someone that was molested or someone that was um, beat up or physically assaulted on a regular basis by their family structure or the environment they lived in where being fighting and being able to fight was a common place of expression. That narrative to me feels like uh, such an important piece to know we don't really separate the two. We do emphasize the undertouch because that's a way we can frame it. But if someone's touching you mm-hmm. in a way that is not um, consensual, not healing, not thinking of you at all, that's that's contributing yeah. to the undertouched. Yeah. And so I just want to emphasize that a lot because a lot of times we, we frame things as a cranky undertouched. But there is a way in which this is about both. This is about bodies not just being touched. And this is also important, too, because a lot of folks that do professional cuddling, cuddle parties, mm-hmm. and they're all excited about this idea of, like, yes, we can do cuddle parties, we'll fix it. And and I actually love the fact they have cuddle parties. This is still mostly a kind of a white experience. Mm-hmm. But I'm seeing black folks get more into this as well and do this more professionally. And it feels at first like a strange major, strange, strange activity. But this is not just a cuddle party. Exactly. This is not just um, I'm going to cuddle... Um, for a couple of days. This is a, a, a touch plan that 
is about hearing your story. Well, Aaron, I, I would love for you to speak a little bit more to that because there's been several times within our workshops or our deep dives where individuals have said, you know, okay, so if they're chronically undertouched, then that means that we, we should start touching them. And yes, we should start cuddling yes, yes, them. Yes, right we should now. jump right into it right like, now, right now right in this now. very moment. And I would love for you to speak a little bit to that as to why that is not a good idea. Well, there's this famous story. <laughs> I say famous. I've told the story a thousand times within our workshops, but I think it's important to revisit right here and kind of put it on the record of why I don't just be like, oh, let's, I just share this about the contact let's all just dogpile on top of each other and become, you know, fix the touch. Mm-hmm. Um, is I have a mentee and it's about three to four years ago. Um, and we, we had a conflict and we had conflicts probably almost every week. And this is not a normal when we're doing, uh, mentorship part Mm -hmm. of mentoring is pushing against parts of the trauma story that make them uncomfortable to help them grow or move past it and so this particular day we were having a chore that was we're in conflict over and in that conflict i remember they were able to walk out the door and i said if you walk out the door you have to do that task indefinitely you know like as as a normal schedule as long as you're living here with this mentorship program but if you come and sit down with me you'll never have to do that task again he was like yes the task was to muck our duck pen, our duck area that it would get kind of sloppy after, right. over time. And for me, when I look at that conversation, we talked, we said, I said, if you talk to me for five minutes, we ended up talking for like an hour. And in that hour, I just asked a question. I asked several questions. This one stands out. I said, when was the last time you were platonically held or touched in a way that was healing you were thought of in the last year? You know, three to five minutes last year, an hour, a couple of days. You know, what was it? And he couldn't think of one instance where someone thoughtfully, mindfully checked in and said, can I touch you on your terms for your healing, for your grounding? Couldn't think of one instance. He said, the last time I could think of that, he was five years old. His grandpa was always pick up and hold him and hug him and snuggle him. Mm -hmm. It was the last time I remember being held or touched. And so I realized that moment that he was chronically undertouched. And in that chronically untouched behavior and thinking, there's a, a level of not just being someone touching your body like at a cuddle party, but it's about someone listening to you, building trust with you, mm-hmm. knowing your trauma stories, understanding your body works and doesn't work and says, I want to navigate those things and hold your body and hold your, your touch needs with that in mind. Mm-hmm. And the chronically untouched narrative speaks not just of a lack of tender touch, but a lack of culture, lack of environment that says you matter, your story matters, mm. I hear you. Mm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a byproduct. And when that's not in place, the, 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 it's clear that you're in an environment where you're going to be isolated. Mental health is going to be at risk at, at will. That violence is probably short, shortly right around the corner. is accessible. Right. And so when I, when I thought about that narrative of him being crocodile touched, I asked him that day, I said, can I touch you? Hold your hand? No, 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 no! Don't, don't, don't touch me at all. Don't touch me. Mm-hmm. And for twelve months, we have a daily routine. At the time, we would spend called table time, and we would talk about how you're doing physically, mentally, and spiritually, and other topics that might be on top. With this case for this year, the other topic was our touch needs, mm-hmm. our trauma stories around touch, and we had an extensive chat, casual, sometimes formal conversation mm-hmm. around touch for a year. Mm-hmm. And then one day almost to the date of a year, I go to leave and he's just kind of a hug. Mm. And that was the first hug that he felt safe to give from me, his mentee, and, and me to give to him 
after 12 months, of, 12 months of talking about it. Yeah. And so if I said to him, oh, you haven't touched this little dog pile and jump on your... Mm-hmm. It, it would have set him back. It would have it would have deepened his trauma. Instead, we cultivated some trust, conversation, some language that was customized to him. Mm-hmm. Right? And over the last several years, we've, we've gotten to a place where touch is not rare. It's not hard to find. It's a part of how we interact with each other. And in that narrative, now that we have a support group that works on this, we break down the idea that cuddle parties are great. Professional cuddles are amazing. But we don't just assume that's where we're going to start. They might be a year out from their first professional cuddling experience. Mm -hmm. They might be a year out from their first cuddle party. They might be a year out from actually receiving their first hug. And we need to be sensitive to the patience of allowing somebody to design healing that is on pace with their own nervous system, their own experience and their own uh, ability to track what feels safe and when it feels safe. Yeah. Welcome to Holistic Resistance Radio. This is Aaron Johnson. Hello, this is Portia B. We're going to be unpacking the one of our biggest fundraisers to date. Um, we are doing a queer housing project. Portia, speak a little bit about this project or... Give us a quick description of what we're working with here. Yeah, so what we are doing in this fundraiser is the POC Queer Housing Project. And what this project is centered around is having an opportunity to create a co-housing that is centering POC, centering queer folks in Southern California. What we learned is that in Southern California, there is not an option of this type of living And we want to implement that in Southern California. And we have several goals in that we want to be able to buy some acreage and um, have a house that we are able to purchase. And also on that land, what we're desiring to do is build as many tiny homes and as many earth domes that we can as possible. Because earth domes are just amazing structures and they are earthquake resistant fire resistant, which being in Southern California is extremely important. And um, we also want to have the option of a tiny home because of the location in which we are located and recognizing that we do live in a hyper racist and hyper homophobic environment. And so if these individuals need an option of leaving, they have safe, sustainable, uh, they have a safe, sustainable house that they can get in and move their tiny homes to be in a safe space. Another important aspect of the POC housing project that we are looking to create is an option of being able to have a rain capturing system, solar panels that can help sustain. And I'll go more into those initiative and those needs that we desire for the project. But overall, just to be able to have uh, POC be able to sustain themselves right here on the property. Yeah. So it sounds like to me like one of our goals in holistic resistance is to create a model Right, so then people can take these models and and maybe do them other places. One of the things that we noticed is we want to not only have a housing for intentional community to disrupt ways that we shelter as folks of color, um, but also the idea of teaching people how to earth build, teaching people you know how to get their hands into the earth, yeah. want, you know access to food that's grown on site with rain capture, um, and so that that complexity of like how do we have a living space that's an intentional community. And also is healing medicine, healing for the body, exactly. healing for the mind, recovery spaces. Obviously, we can't help 
a ton of people, but we can help maybe nine people or 10 or so, maybe five full-time residents and some, some places for some folks that want to come in and stay for a while. Um, speaking to the idea of like shelter, give me a little context of like just a little bit about what you've been through around shelter growing up and why this is such an important part of getting people started into the world of uh, living in community and having secure shelter. Yeah, you know, for me growing up and having a single parent that had anywhere from maybe two to three hours a day to be able to be with all seven of her children Mm -hmm. and at the same time worried about keeping a roof over our head and rent constantly being a a conversation, I just really saw there were several pieces that stood out to me, Aaron, and that was the importance of community. Mm -hmm. The more that I became older and I and I started to live in a community and I've been in a, in a community type setting of living is I've seen the power of what it looks like and being able to have that support to not have everything weighing on your shoulders in a lot of ways and it, it was just very disrupting you know for me I, I remember being young and, and questioning oh what would my living situation look like or you know I've, I've dealt with homelessness several times in my lifetime me and my family have been without shelter and so the you know just a piece of earth building alone became such a powerful uh a powerful piece for me and learning that I could build my own shelter and that literally the earth around me could be the thing that houses mm-hmm. me and mm-hmm. holds me in ways that the system couldn't yeah thank you for sharing that i think um there's a way in which holistic resistance realizes that natural building earth building is a center of our work if we had the budget for it we would just build earth one right from scratch from foundation to on a property and get permits and get a all that but we also know that budget wise that's asking a lot because the county is pretty strict right now Mm -hmm. um on building earth domes they uh, maybe three years ago there is an earth dome built in the yucca valley it was permitted and they loved it when the joshua tree was permitted and done and then there's a Earth uh, Earth One, which would be what we would want to build in Claremont. They built one, and then the county changed the law, right, to where those plans are now disqualified. Yeah. So now for us to build Earth One, we have to take the plans, buy the plans um, from Cal Earth, and then they're, they're dead plans at that point. They're not usable for the county. Take them up to Portland, exactly. have engineers look at it, and rewrite. Um, uh, a new, a slightly uh, modifications to the plans to make them be green stamped of a secure structure, which is all just red, red tape. tape. <laughs> it's not none of this is necessary. Yeah. And then we would come back down to the county and say, "Can we build Earth yeah. One?" Now, yeah. I would rather do that, right? Yeah. But the alternative, as far as time's sake, is to purchase a normal house, a wood house, and then um, take our time in getting building smaller earth domes, like you know, small that the county doesn't worry about, like less than ten foot. Um, by 10 foot little beautiful little huts and really get the skill set built and then work with the county over time to build on that five acres a secondary house that'll be a full-size house with all the time so we aren't waiting five years for all that no i would say think five years if we have all the money we can do that in less time but that's why we're saying let's just we could either a one trail of this is that we can build a earth one from scratch Mm -hmm. second trail is that we can just build a buy a a normal house get the intentional community going have the gardens rain capture in place and then build on that, buy it on like a five acre plot and then build a second house, which would be Earth One or exactly. an Eco Dome um, on that property as we work through the red tape with the county. Um, we're trying to do all this above board. We don't want the county to come down on us or 
be stressing us out. We want it to be a stress-free environment. We want to do all these things above board because we want to be able to make this scalable. If we're doing it legally, yeah. that makes it scalable. That's partly why we're making sure we're fundraising this so that we won't have to cut any corners. Um, the other piece that, that I know at Holistic Resistance that we're also trying to be able to teach mm-hmm. other POC queer folks yeah. how to build with yeah. earth, how yeah. to build, how yes. to earth build, yes. right? Because yeah. that's, that's also the power in which we're trying to lean towards is not just um, saying, it, oh, build it and it's done, but mm-hmm. also we empower ourselves yes. to take um, a, a initiative and action and building a structure mm-hmm. that is healthy for the environment, yep. good for us overall, mm-hmm. and just powerful community space that can be held in that. Yeah. Holistic Resistance talks about how do we resist holistically. Super Adobe building, tiny house building, alternative natural building, but specifically Super Adobe um, is one of those big interruptions. Yes. Of like, we can actually live a more sustainable life, a more um, grounded life. Like me and you have built you know, in 90 degree temperatures and in, in, in the heat here, <laughs> me and you have built domes yep. and shelters with our hands. And yes. you're not a professional builder. I'm not a professional builder. Yep. And we have built these. Yep. We have learned. We've got, we, this is past, we, we can teach this, the basic parts of this in a week. Exactly. And that to me is really important to think about and hold as we're talking about holistic resistance. And, you know, I, I think another thing that would be great to talk a little bit about this, Aaron, because not everyone is familiar with earth domes and earth building and things like that. Could you just share with with everyone on the podcast just a little bit about like the basics of earth building? Of course, there's like a little like some measurements and things like that that need to be encompassing that needs to happen. But for the most part, for someone who's like, I don't know if I can support what earth building. Mm. I've never done it before. Yeah. Can you break down the simplicity of what? That's, earth that's huge, like? and I, I'll share that because one of the things we need in our support is when we start building these structures. We want to invite people from all of the United States to come camp out on our property once we get it purchased and help us build, help us plaster and all that is going to be needed. And so it's so simple in a sense. It's um, earth bag, which is like a long tube. You can imagine like a sandbag, but stretched into a long tube. You usually buy them by the mile. So mm-hmm. you buy a big roll. Uh, by the mile. I think we still got some left over from all the building we've done a mile. And usually it can be anywhere from 12 inches to 18 inches uh, thick the bag, the sandbag. And so what we do is we, we build like a beehive, kind of like a little coil on top of a coil. We put, um, we put uh, 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 bob wire in between each uh, course, we call it. Every time you lay a, a course of bag, it's called one course, mm-hmm. then we do some bob wire. Um, sometimes we hammer rebar through every three feet, um, but that just depends on how you feel about the build. Most likely we, the bob wire is the most important piece. We compact each bag. Now what's cool about it is that anyone that can lift a coffee can, a gallon coffee can, and hand it to the next person, and can you know stand for twenty minutes or thirty minutes, can contribute mm-hmm. or sit. You can be sitting and be in a, a semi-line of moving the earth, mm-hmm. and you just pour that coffee can inside the bag. It's a, such a practical way, and and then one person's holding the bag and they lay that bag. Not laying that bag is take a little technique, and then one person runs a compass mm-hmm. to make sure that the wall is consistently going up at the right um, progression and not. Um, uh, off too off because if it's too off it could fall right um so the compassing takes a little bit of a skill set but literally um i think most people that do compassing for a couple of hours get it they go oh this is how compassing works mm-hmm. um there are more complicated ways to compass but the basic part of the compassing that i learned is simple um and we have one constant it's a little chain that keeps you kind of accurate of 
of the of the arch and then one that keeps you kind of progressing in closer and closer so one's a moving compass and one's a straight compass and spun over podcast is impossible probably but <laughs> the idea is that that helps you regulate your circle make sure your circle yeah. is consistent going up yeah. outside of that everyone could jump in there and pound people could jump in there and blaster people could jump in there and shovel um this is a hands-on quiet singing we, we've sang we've jammed while we built you know and that's actually what's beautiful about earth but it's not a loud experience um, most most of the time, it's just chill. You know, we can sit there and talk and process and sing and be in community yes. as we make the yes. building go up. Yeah, th- thank you so much for sharing that, Aaron. I, I think that that just really breaks it down and helps simplify this conversation of what does earth building look like? What does it mean? What does it consist of? And, you know, I just want to share a little bit from myself. When I started building, when I very first started earth building, there was an experience for me that I saw the power of being able to be close to the earth and at the same time building a structure that would then be sheltering my loved one. There's a story that you often tell that just always warms my heart when you talk about is that you say like when you walk, you were, you, were you and um, your wife, Camelia, were laying down in the bed and you looked up and you're like, oh, look, there's my loved one's hands, you know? And you talk about how like there's this piece where you can you can see and you can you can feel the love of, of and the energy of everyone who put their hands on mm. that structure and I, and you know i have a similar desire in the poc co-housing project as we build earth domes and things of that sort is that i can, i can look and say oh that was when we were singing that song oh that's when we were we were um holding space for that grief space or we're doing work on this project in a way that we could come together as community and in, in a huge way that um, you know, and and not like anti wood building, but you know, there's louder um, tools that needs to be used. But with earth building, it could be songs singing, it could be um, processing, and I, I just really appreciate that. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, I, I, you know the one that's important about earth building. It's a handmade house. You know, I, I love wood. Wood is beautiful, but what I find is how we historically build houses in America is very wasteful. Um, the, if you think about how wood's processed, buying it, it's just, it's not a sustainable process. And living in the Mojave Desert with a soil is really ideal for super adobe building. I am shocked that the county is, or I'm not shocked. The county is so slow at inviting us into it because I go into most houses, it's chemical, mm-hmm. it's, it's paint and it's mm-hmm. plastic and it's all kind of chemicals mm-hmm. that make up a house. Wood is involved. You can build a clean house, but the way they're traditionally built, houses aren't built to really feed the soul. Yeah. Super Adobe, I've lived in a dome for five years. Yeah. And reluctantly moved. Um, not because I wanted to, because I didn't want the, the county tracking me while I was living there. And so I realized that because right. the county was now tracking us, that I wanted to move out so I could either alter the building or what I needed to do without worrying about displacing myself. And so for me, I'm now living in a wood tiny house and it's beautiful. I love it. But when you think of a structure, I learned living in Earth Dome that it, it, it makes a difference when you have a building that breathes, right? So when I lived in the Earth Dome, what we figured out, we have a 13 foot tall by or 13 foot wide, 15 feet tall Earth Dome. That Earth Dome in the morning, you can open the windows. It's the coolest time of the day here in the desert. It takes about 20, 30 minutes. Mm. It cools off inside from all the you know sleeping and energy you might have. 
and you close the windows. If you have little covers, cover the windows. If you have a wood door, we had a metal door. It still worked with the metal door. Mm-hmm. And you close it. You know, doors already closed, the windows open. Cools off. You close it. And from literally 7 or 6 in the morning until about 4 or 5 in the evening, it's a pretty consistent 75 to 80 degrees. Mm-hmm. Even if it's 105 or 100 degrees outside, it stays consistently that much. Yeah. So right around 4 o'clock, the heat finally makes it through the 18-inch thick walls, the earth walls. And starts entering into the room, so it's getting kind of muggy right around 4 o'clock to like 6. All you do literally in a small dome like that is open the door. And in an hour, all that warm heat dispenses itself, mm. and the sun's down at that time. And you can invite in some more cool air and then close the door or a window, mm-hmm. whatever you want to use for a for, And that's the cooling system. Now, what's beautiful about our dome is built right next door to our stick house. And I say that because the stick house, a wood house, a normal house, we have the swamp cooler running all day. Right, it's a hundred degrees, and, and certain rooms in the, in the house are still ninety-five degrees, even though the swamp <laughs> yeah. cooler is running all day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and so what I find is that earth domes can be manageable in the Mojave Desert, in Palm Springs, and in the Joshua Tree, in harsh environments. Mm. And and sure, a fan will be great, and sure, having a cooling system in place is fine. But what we will find is everything around installation and sustainability and the fire hazards. Is in breathing and or using natural it's material, it it is it is superior by a long shot. And so for me, mm-hmm. then the spiritual element of it is we built our dome with our community. Yeah. So the community can come out and support. It didn't know how to be skilled. If they could pick up a coffee can, we had two folks that knew how to build. Me and my brother. Everyone else, we kind of taught as we went. Yep. That's what's beautiful about it. Someone yep. else is learning. Yep. And you can be in community. Yeah. Right. And so for me, what's beautiful about that is that that's when we start plastering. I could see the hamper. So we did a rough plaster. Usually what you do is you do you know, your, your rough plaster, then you come back over it with a, a smooth plaster, and then you come back over it with like a elastomeric or some kind of sealant, and then you might paint it after that. Well, we did in size. We started plastering, which a rough plaster went up, and we were going to put a smooth plaster on, and we said, let's leave the rough plaster. Because rough plaster, you can see all the imprints. You can see the textures. You can see all the folks' hands and prints and yeah. divots and Parts of the building that was in place, and me and my wife said, let's just leave it. Mm-hmm. Earth color, no paint, just raw, rough plastered. And we put a sealant on it to keep it from, like, crumbling. Mm-hmm. Not crumbling, but keep it a little bit of water resistant. So our hands rub against it, it'll, it'll, it'll stay kind of a little a barrier between a little wet barrier. But other than that, yeah. that is how it's been for the last seven years. And so for me, this is the kind of experience that I think more black folks and POC folks need to have experience. This is a part of their life. Yeah. And I think it will ever change how we think about architecture and building and empower us in a way that I feel like American culture does not want us to be empowered. They keep talking about mm-hmm. safety. And I always think it's important. Oh, we want to be safe. That's why these codes are here. Probably be safe. And these, these tech architects have been tested. They're superior in their building. They're superior in their safety. They're superior in fire building. In every level of shelter building, yeah. s- domes are more superior. Strength, fire resistance, chemicals, people that have allergic reaction or mold I- issues, domes are superior. Right, mm-hmm. but what's interesting is, is a county said like, ah, oh, no, 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 no. We'll watch paradise burn to the ground, the entire city wiped out mm. in several hours. And when they talk about rebuilding it, they're talking about building more wood buildings. Mm-hmm. There are many burn areas now. With climate change, they're going to be coming, including the high desert here. We burn every five years badly here. Mm-hmm. With climate change, the wildfires in California are only get worse, and it blows my mind that that paradise fire killed. More people I've ever seen in a fire, maybe in the history of our country. I wouldn't be surprised, probably in, the, in recent history, but definitely in the last, my lifetime. Mm-hmm. I've never seen the numbers that we saw in Paradise die. And what was shocking is to go back and build more wood buildings there again. Mm-hmm. And 50 years from today, Paradise is going to burn again. 
right? Same building. But I imagine if we put 50% of the buildings were earth buildings, super dobies, none of them will burn. Mm. None of them will burn. That to me should be a no-brainer in every burn zone in California. They should be they should be giving subsidies for folks who build earth dome. So I just want to be that. I want to be on this end right. of the conversation. That's why everywhere we're gonna have our kind of you know community, we're gonna build earth domes. We need to yeah. disrupt yeah. the thinking in our community. And this this is I think project speaks to that. Yeah. And want to invite the United States, the anyone anywhere in the country to come and learn and practice with us in building community and reaching for black and supporting black people. Yes. This kind of architecture needs to be in the middle of it because shelter is a problem for POC folks in the United States and particularly in Southern California. We have a shelter problem historically. And I know we can't solve everyone, but this model can start the conversation and stop the ignorance that we see through the county and the city and the state when it comes to architecture and sheltering people, particularly brown people and black people. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing all that. Mm. Mm. So, for all y'all that have been hanging out with us for the last, uh, let's see, uh, 20 minutes or so, I want to just let you all know that this is a, this is a passion for us. We're not going to stop um, building. We're not going to stop um, thinking about shelter and taking on the complexity around shelter. Yeah. This fundraiser for PLC Housing is our first project after we're done with this. And it's established. We want to start another one, right? But we wanted to start the first one here in the Mojave Desert, specifically in Phelan, because there is no such thing of this here. Intentional communities in the Northwest are pretty common. Even down in Joshua Tree in Los Angeles, there's intentional communities. Chico has a really big, you know, intentional community thinking. But mm-hmm. the Mojave Desert, particularly Phelan, does not exist. And it, yeah. and it definitely doesn't exist for POC folks. And no. it definitely doesn't exist because of natural building to be one of the centerpieces around it. So there's so exactly. many um, barriers we're breaking down for this project. Um, we just appreciate anyone that hears our voice yeah. to let us take on the impossible. The county, the government, wildfires, climate change. That's what we're talking about around this model here. But I think we can keep that creativity going. We want to thank Cal Earth for teaching us yes. how to earth build and being such a great consulting force. Yes. And they're doing the good fight themselves. Yeah, to yes, yeah. to take on uh, the the housing industry, the force. If you ever have any time to go to Spirit, California, it's not far from where we are. Um, Cal Earth is worth visiting. I highly recommend it. CalEarth.org. Yeah, thank you so much, Aaron, for sharing all that. And yeah, I I, I couldn't agree with you more. Once I started to Earth build with Aaron and supporting him and building his Earth Dome, I was just like. Hey, Aaron, I want to I build me one, too. And ever since, it's just been so, so powerful to see the prolificness of that work happen. And I also want to talk a little bit about how, you know, what we're talking, we're not just talking about, we're actually, you know, following that up with action. And specifically, if we could, I know this is a different project, but I think it's worth mentioning, talk a little bit about the Chronically Undertouched project and how earth building and being close to the earth is a part of that conversation. You'll constantly see in Holistic Resistance us have a project over here, POC Queer Housing, right? And you have a project over here called the Chronic Intertouch. They're really together in a lot of ways, right? Because you think about exactly. we're working right now with young black men exactly. around their chronically undertouched needs, which is a huge conversation within itself. We have several podcasts about that specifically. And then we have the queer housing. And one of the things that's important, we talk about mental health. We talk about violence in the black community. We talk about 
um, self-care routines. Well, the Chronic of Touch is that. And so you'll watch, you know, podcasts and videos around the Chronic of Touch, which you'll see us doing in the Chronic of Touch is taking sessions inside of what? Earth, earth dome. dome. You'll see us outside working with the earth, or the earth plastering mm-hmm. in community. Yep. This is all a part of our touch needs being met. They aren't really separate. Yep. We separate them for simplicity purposes so people can support exactly. our campaign for Chronic Inner Touch because that's important work that we're doing, right? And some people say, I want to support the Queer Housing Project and, and, and the POC Controlled Housing Project. Yes, but understand in the end, on this intentional community, what are we going to do inside there? We're going to be disrupting the chronic under touch. Yeah, we're going to be taking workshops. We're going to be healing. We're going to do a lot of help and support. And what's important about this resistance is we don't charge POC people for our services. And so we want to keep all this as as free as possible. The housing will be subsidized. We don't know how much fundraising we'll be able to do. It'll be either close to zero, like it's low cost, controlled, like 200 bucks a month or $100 a month, or, you know, work in exchange, help build some domes, work the farm, whatever you do to help kind of balance it out. But we aren't trying... Exactly. To charge black folks to heal. Exactly. To charge black folks to live organically and naturally. We want to offer these as free as possible for folks. All PLC folks have access to this wisdom. We want to make it as accessible. And so through your donation, you make this accessible. And so the Chronically Untouched campaign mm-hmm. is, to me, um, a block, right? Earth building is a block. Mm-hmm. Chronically Untouched is a block. And these blocks and many of the things that are um, kind of build yep. the infrastructure of holistic resistance. So that's the two projects that we're launching right now. It's a campaign out right now, um, uh, GoFundMe campaign to support the Chronic and Touch project. And now we have this fundraiser for the Queer Housing Project. And what's important to note too, and I'll say this in the end here, is security is an issue. We live in a place where white folks have burned down and tore down buildings that were POC controlled. There's a mosque that was out in the Atalanto area um, that had a burial site only probably one of the few in the country that buries folks, you know, the mm-hmm. way that their religion um, asked. Um, and someone burned it down. Yeah. And the FBI is still, quote-unquote, investigating it, haven't found out who did it. But we know who burned down this mosque, right? We know what happened. It had no electricity out there. <laughs> this is an off-grid mosque. It's, you know, it, it was burned. Mm-hmm. And um, it, our church has been vandalized multiple times in the last yeah. 10 years. Um, so, yeah. you know, Sawaska's painted on it, broken into. I mean, the there's the security. Flags fly. Exactly. So for us, we don't want to have this this housing community not have a solid fence around the entire perimeter. Cameras. And cameras available mm-hmm. to track people that are kind of trying to track us. And and we're not going to announce this on Facebook. We're building this in feeling because we want people tracking us that are and they want to target us right now with this emboldened white supremacist environment we're in. And so this is going to be kind of a low key fundraiser. We're doing this. Um, we're doing this very very. Um, we're not giving away addresses or where we're going to yeah. be building this at. Um, only people that know about this is folks that are in our circle that we know that we can trust because white supremacist folks to attack POC and queer folks is a common thing. Exactly. Um, and we don't want that to be a part of our world. So security is a big issue. So one of our in this fundraiser, we want to also, if you are a specialist in security, say you install cameras, maybe you help that. Yes, your, that's your wheelhouse of perfection or skill set. We want to talk to you. We want to put a fence around this place, a six-foot-tall fence, probably earthen fence or a solid fence, mm-hmm. so that we can have some sense of security as well as a solid alarm system so that people can't just come on site and cause harm to the folks of color that are in this room or in this in this project and on this property that we're going to be building. Yes. Great. Any other closing thoughts you want to add before we wrap up this podcast today, Portia? Yeah, so... Um... Basically, the fundraiser will be September 21st, mm-hmm. and I just want to go over a, a brief list of things, of ways that um, P- 
people can help and support the POC housing initiative that doesn't Great. just require them to be here in person. Some yeah. folks aren't able to give money. Some people aren't able to be here in person. And so here are some remotely ways you can support as well. Um, so some of those include assisting us in trying to find land, having options of land. We're looking for permaculturalists, uh, individuals who uh, understand and have the option of procurement and installation of solar panels, being able, like Aaron said, about security, earth builders, volunteers and experience, and anybody who would like to take time to donate tools, like uh, building materials that we may need as well, and overall support and money towards our donation and goal and being able to raise for uh, this POC housing project. Yeah. All right. Um, I don't know who you are, but whoever's going to listen to this podcast, we thank you for that. We are doing our good work here and staying creative and taking on the impossible. And I know that 20 years, 10 years from today, we can look back at this project and be so glad that we invested in it now. Yes. It can give shelter to folks for a lifetime. And that, to me, is what we want to see happen in this uh, house number one in holistic resistance uh, projects that we are launching. Yes. And I, too, also just want to say thank you. There are lives that will be touched immensely and, and truly in a lot of ways being being supported in ways that otherwise wouldn't happen outside of a project of this magnitude. So just really appreciate you listening to this podcast, taking in the wisdom. Thank you, Aaron, for sharing all the details and, and your wisdom around earth building. Thank you for teaching me how to earth build. And like we said, we, we keep holistically resisting in all the ways. All right, let's keep reaching. I'm going to give a cell phone number. If you go to the website, you can email me. But one of the fastest ways to start having conversations about this, send them calls on me. You can call me or text me first at this number at 885-6740. Again, you can text or call me at 885-6740 and get more information about this. I want to have a conversation with you or Portia or maybe text it out. I want to support how how do I do a certain project or how do I get involved in a way like right now? That number will get you attached to us real quickly. You can email us as well, as well from our website, but know that the text that number is like gold. Get to us right now. Much love. Peace. Peace. Oh, also keep reaching. <laughs>